Uh, We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 2. We're slowly making our way through the book of Genesis. Now, if you were a big picture person, as I'm sure some of you are, you can think of the Bible in three big movements. And the first two big movements of the Bible happen incredibly fast. Creation is the first, and that's Genesis 1 and 2. Fall is the second, that's Genesis 3. And then redemption is basically the rest of the Bible. Genesis 4 onward to the book of Revelation. Now we've spent several weeks, and we're going to continue in a couple more, in creation. We looked at some of these foundational truths in the beginning, God. We saw that creation, or God's word, is the glue of creation. And that the glue of human dignity is God's image. And if you change one of these foundational truths from Genesis 1 and 2, well, that greatly alters the way that we understand the rest of the Bible. Well, here in Genesis 2, we're also going to see another important foundational idea, covenant. Covenant is the glue of relationships. What is a covenant? A covenant is a binding agreement that brings about a relational commitment. I want to suggest that you cannot have a real relationship without covenants. Relationships crumble without boundaries. People want the benefits of relationships, but they don't want the the boundaries involved that maintain the relationship itself, the integrity of it. I mean, think of it like this. Who wants rules? But... We'll see this, that if we reject rules, we also reject relationships. Because relationships require rules to mean anything. And the more that we've seen society kind of breaking down the boundaries of what defines relationships, the more we're seeing this cultural phenomenon called loneliness. It's interesting, as you look at Western society, loneliness seems to be a very common theme. I recently read some statistics cited from the book Going Solo that more and more people are choosing to live alone in the major city centers. Uh, They say that upwards and over 40% of all households contain a single occupant. Several weeks back, the New York Times published a headline article, UK appoints a minister of loneliness. They're learning that loneliness is a great problem here in the United States, in the the UK. In fact, that article in the New York Times suggests that loneliness can be a greater risk to human health than smoking 15 cigarettes per day. Albert Moeller, commenting on this phenomenon, said, a biblical perspective would underline the fact that we should not be surprised that loneliness would be not only devastating as an experience, but perhaps even deadly as a health consequence. God made us individual human beings, each made in the image of God, needing one another. God made us a social creature, needing the kind of social contact and furthermore, social encouragement. We know that human beings who are isolated grow weary of life. All of life becomes distorted. It's one of the saddest but most inevitable byproducts of loneliness. So as we look at God's word this morning, we're going to see the origin of relationship here in Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to focus on one of two crucial relationships that's outlined here. And this is our relationship with God. Next week, we're going to get into marriage. 
that institution, that fundamental institution of family, and I would say the building block of society as well. So, how did, or why did God make us social creatures? Well, the question finds its answer in the person of God himself. And let's take a look at verses 4 to 6 together. It reads this, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now, As we take a look at these verses together, I want you to notice a couple of things first. Uh, first, look at that start of verse 4. These are the generations. As we're making our way through the book of Genesis, I want you to keep an eye on that phrase. It occurs 11 times in the book of Genesis. It's like a big structural marker to tell us that the story's moving forward. You can break the book up, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, into this kind of history of humankind, and then more specifically, it gets into the history of Israel. So there's four big moves at the beginning. We see the creation, the fall, the flood, and then Babel. And then as we get into that second part of the story, Israel in particular, then we see the origins or the history of the founding fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so on and so forth. Another thing that I want you to notice in this passage as we delve into this story is that some have suggested that Genesis 2 is a second creation account that essentially uh, Genesis 1 and 2, the editorial process was so sloppy that whoever put this together didn't realize that this account greatly conflicts with the other account. Now, as you're reading Genesis, I think you will notice how well-crafted a book it is. If you were able to read the Hebrew of Genesis, the the use of wordplay and imagery, uh, the intentionality that went into the composition of this book, you would say to yourself, it's absurd to think that they would have that level of detail, but they'd miss something like this. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 don't agree with one another. No, that's not what is happening here. We're looking at the creation account from a different perspective. Think of Genesis 1 as the wide lens view of creation. And Genesis 2 narrows the focus on God's crown of creation, humankind. And that's what we see here this morning. Why, does he, why do we need this close-up? I think it's because the Holy Spirit wants us to see just how involved God is in the creation of humankind. Now there in verses 4 and 5, you'll see that God uses a special name of himself, the Lord God. The Hebrew is Yahweh Elohim. Remember, in the Bible, names are significant. Names carry import. They carry meaning. We saw in chapter 1 that Elohim was that creator God name. It described God as all-powerful, as the universe created, as separated from and above the created order. He is in a class all of his own. Well, Yahweh, though, is different. Yahweh is God's personal covenant name. And so here we see that the great creator is also the great relator. And he wants to have a relationship with humankind. 
Significantly, the only place in chapter 2 and 3 where Yahweh Elohim is not used of God is in Genesis 3, verses 2 through 5. This is in the fall. When Satan comes and tempts Eve, she consciously avoids using the personal name of God as she's lured into sin. One commentator says this, the God they are talking about is malevolent, secretive, and concerned to constrict man. His character is so different from that of Yahweh Elohim that the narrative pointedly avoids that name in the dialogue. I mean, let's just stop on this for a moment. The Bible is so true to life. As you're making your way through the Scriptures, you're going to see that in order for Eve to be lured away from God, she would have to create relational distance in her heart from the Lord God. And so she would have to use this more abstract name of him instead of his personal name. And Adam, as we look at theology and as we see the passage, he's standing right there too, nodding his head. He's involved. Same thing. They're creating distance between themselves and God. Now, if you've ever been in involved in rebellion and sin, which we all have, I think you'll find this dynamic is true for your own heart, too. I remember times in my life when I was running away from God, when I was essentially saying, I'm going to do it my way. And you know what happened in my heart, in my head, when this was going on? I started to reason that God must not really be who he said he is. That God must not have my best interests in mind. I'll stop right there. God always has your best interests in mind. There are many times in your life, and I'm just going to be clear here, that you do not have your own best interests in mind, but God always has our best interests in mind. He is the God who loves life. And any time that he places a boundary upon us, it is because he delights not in stifling freedom, but seeing humanity flourish. God's got a lot better things to do than sit upon us and make sure we don't get to go out and have our fun. He's controlling the universe for crying out loud. It works the same way with our closest relationships too, doesn't it? Over Christmas, Katie and I had a serious, what my British friends call, a row. It began over a misunderstanding, and if I'm going to be totally honest with you, it was entirely my fault, and I couldn't see it at the time. We were so mad at one another that we did not talk for two days. And I'm telling you, I have been married to her. She's a beautiful woman for 11 years. Do the math real quick. And we've never had a fight like that before. Well, what happened during those two days? Nothing good. Now, I know you guys, you're not like me. You guys are perfect. But when I am mad, my mind tends to be too good to me and not so good to the other person. So I'm going through this thought process like, oh, she is just so lucky to be married to me and my superior qualities. And these are the things I do for this household I mean, sure, I mess up from time to time, but nobody's perfect, but oh, that evil Katie. And you guys see it, don't you? You don't. 
I was creating a false narrative, wasn't I? Here I've been given this beautiful bride from God. And I'm saying things over in my heart that she's not. It took me two days to snap out of that sinful fog and to surrender my pride to the Lord and to get away from that stupid story that I was making up. Do you know what I found in those two days? I was incredibly lonely. This is what sin does. It destroys relationships. It does so every time. You create your own loneliness. Now, I'm not saying that every time that we experience loneliness, it's because of sin. I mean, that would be a thoughtless comment. But I am leaning into what Moses is talking about here. And he's saying that sin is the great relational destroyer. Eve distorts the name of God because she wants what she wants. As we move forward, we see just how intentional and personal God was in making us. And this is what makes the fall even more tragic. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. The text reads, Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, I'm sure we have some artists in the room. If you've seen someone form uh, a jar or a pot from a spinning wheel, isn't it beautiful? It's fantastic. I wish I could do that. This is the idea that Moses has in mind as he uses this word formed. We were not made by God's word like the rest of creation. No, like a master artist, God formed the man out of the dust of the ground. He did this with tender, loving care and attention to detail so that every contour, every shape of the human body, every aspect of who we are was formed by the beautiful mind of God. Psalm 139 was David's worship over this idea. He said, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And yes, you are. You were not made off of a conveyor belt. You were fashioned by God Almighty, which means you have dignity value, and worth. Now, when you think of the words that Moses uses here, dust, you would probably lean back in and say, well, how does that make anyone very valuable? In fact, the Hebrew wordplay is the name of man is Adam and the name of the ground is Adamah. John Calvin noted that the body of Adam is formed of clay and destitute of sense to the end that no one should exalt beyond measure in the flesh. He must be excessively stupid who does not hear learn humility. It was in 1924 that Dr. Charles H. Mayo wrote an article titled, Are Bodies Worth About 84 Cents? In it, he quipped that there is enough sulfur in the human body to keep fleas off of the back of one dog and enough iron for an eight-penny nail. So what is the, 
the running cost of the human body today if you broke it down into its constituent parts, including the trace elements such as iron, phosphorus, sodium, etc. Well, when you figure it up all together at today's market value, it comes to a grand total of $4.50. I mean, let that one sink in for a moment. Everything that we're composed of is worth a $5 bill, but don't forget the 50 cents in change. Psalm 103.14 reminds us, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. It is from dust that we came, it is to dust that we will go again. Verses 15 and 16 continue as, for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. $4.50, a withering blade of grass. How do you find significance in that, Moses? Well, Moses tells us that the worth comes from this. Look at verse 2 again. Or, sorry, 7. The Lord formed the man of the dust from the ground and what? Breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Living creature is the Hebrew word nefesh. It's soul. The difference between $4.50 and priceless is the breath of the Creator God who breathed life into us to know Him, to love Him, to relate to Him. Which begs the question, where are you expending your life force and your vitality? Are you spending all of your time on that $4.50 body? Now, I'm not saying that the body is a bad thing. The, the Bible, when it speaks of the body, the body is a beautiful thing. It's a place where the Spirit of God dwells. It's incredible. But having said that, by comparison to the soul that lives within us that's meant to relate to God, well, there's no comparison. Your soul is eternal and priceless. It will outlive the stars, and you will get an upgraded body. So why spend all the time in the world indulging this, satisfying this, making this look perfect for everybody else, worrying about this? This is what Paul said to Timothy. His encouragement was, while bodily training is of some value, Timothy, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Don't waste all of your time on the $4.50. Pursue the priceless. Now let's take a little detour for a moment. If you guys enjoy real estate like I do, we'll go take a look at our first home. Look with me at verses 9 to 14. Moses paints this beautiful picture of the first home. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Paishan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold and the gold of the land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. 
It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. So here we have it, that Garden of Eden that we hear so much about. Where was the Garden of Eden located? Well, I've got the answer to that. The most honest answer for where the Garden of Eden was located is we have no idea. Now, there have been many people who have speculated. I recently read the 19th century author W.F. Warren outdid everyone by locating Eden at the North Pole. He contended, In northern Greenland and Spitsbergen, abundant remains of fossil plants show that during the middle of the tertiary period, the whole circumpolar region manifested a climate similar to that occurring at present in southern Europe. I mean, that's very creative, but also probably very wrong. We probably will not know exactly where Eden was. And here's the other thing. Frankly, it probably doesn't matter, right? So what does matter? Well, this is an archetypal paradise, the place of perfection, beauty, good, food, safety, carefree living. Every human heart, I believe, craves Eden. Even if you're sitting here today and you have no concept of God, even if, as I'm speaking of these things, you think that I'm elevating myths and fables maybe a little too highly, I believe that still, no matter where you are, that our heart craves Eden. We want what we lost. We dream of it. We sing of it. We yearn for it. I mean, a world of no strife, a land of no hunger, a place that is free of disease and sorrow and fruit that if you were to reach out and eat of it, there would be immortality. Who wouldn't want that? It was God's special place that he had prepared for his special creation. Well, what happens? As we look at the Bible, Adam and Eve sin. And they're cast out of the garden. You make your way forward in the Bible and God meets this man named Abraham and he promises him a special land, a promised land. And in some ways, humanity is starting to find its way back to Eden. But then what does Israel do? They sin against God and they're cast out of the promised land. Then we come into the New Testament and we find this individual who has been called in the New Testament a second Adam. And he lives a perfect life. He completely maintains God's covenant. In fact, the the pinnacle moment, he finds himself in a garden called Gethsemane, where he is tempted to move away from the Father's will, the cross. And yet, in his own prayer, he says, not my will, but your will be done. And he goes to that cross to restore paradise to humanity. So that as we make our way to Revelation chapter 21, the very end of the Bible, we see that heaven and earth meet together once again and people, humanity, are brought back to Eden. Don't, don't lose your dreams of Eden. It's not a myth. It's real. And your heart craves it for a reason. Let's get back into this. Look with me at verses 15 and 17 in the text. 
It tells us that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now here we're going to see that covenant is the glue of our relationship with God. Remember how we defined a covenant? A binding agreement that brings about a relationship. So God formed Adam and Eve. He places them in this land for a very special reason. And they are to worship God by working and keeping the garden. The words work and keep in the Hebrew text are worship words. We would translate this sentence, or we could translate it to say that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? To serve and to obey. Now, if you're going to boil down the question, how do I relate to God to a single word, the only word that you can rightly use is the word worship. Worship is so fundamental to your spiritual DNA that we are worshiping without even realizing that we're doing it. James K.A. Smith described worship by saying, you are what you love. Whatever it is that you pursue, that you crave, that you find yourself going back to, that's your worship. So we either worship God or we worship someone or something else. It's Christian Theology 101. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So that worship for the Christian should be like breathing. It's like the tapestry of the love of God that is woven throughout our lives. So no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm at work or mowing the grass or sitting in front of the fire with my kids or sitting here in church for gathered worship. I am always in the presence of God. I am never separate from Him. And David acknowledged this in Psalm 139.7. He said, I can never escape your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. And when you hear that, you might think to yourself, oh boy, I'm an introvert. I don't want someone around me all the time. I need some me time. Trust me. You never truly want to be alone. If we are truly alone, the Bible says we are in hell. Now, C.S. Lewis acknowledged this. He didn't have a very good, sound theology of hell, but one thing that he noted that I agree with is that hell is an incredibly lonely place. He pictured it as a town where quarrels are constant and wants are non-existent, but no one wants to work together and no one wants to be near one another. And so the people of the town live in solitude and they're constantly moving further and further away from one another on into infinity. I mean, that's incredibly scary when I think about that. We don't want to be alone. And i got to tell you, there's good news. Through Jesus, you never have to be alone. You can have God's presence all the time. Jesus is our way back into a right relationship with God. 
Now notice that we had talked about that idea of obeying, at the being, being at the center of this idea of covenant. Now this covenant is not a two-way street. It's not like a rental agreement where the owner of the home has his or her share to do and the renter has his or her share. But in this covenant, God makes a one-sided statement. He says, Adam, you may eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Now, why does he say it like this? Well, because God has no equal. He has no obligation to give anything to us at all. Anything that we receive from God is because of his good pleasure and his own generosity. On the other hand, we are the creature. We are obligated to obey him. Now, what is this tree of knowledge of good and evil? It was likely a tree that offered experiential knowledge of good. I believe that Adam and Eve understood what good was and evil was, but they had never participated in it. And so when they grabbed that tree and ate from it, that changed everything. You might look at this command and think of God He's a restricting God. Look what he says here. Don't eat. But actually, it is an incredible offer of freedom. Look at that. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. So if there's 40,000 trees in this garden, 39,999,000 trees, Adam and Eve, enjoy them, nourish yourselves, rest in the shade of them, swing in the branches, enjoy this garden. I've made this for you. He's an incredibly generous God. Makes me think of a gift of hospitality that I'd received last month. I was graciously invited to a conference and A wonderful woman named Barb hosted Chemo and I in her Airbnb at no cost. Uh, She even left us this beautiful note. She said, I am so thankful to be able to host you during this year's pastor's conference. As I clean this house, I pray for my guests. My prayer for the two of you is that you would find this place to be a place of respite from the turmoil of everyday life. That God would meet you here in a meaningful way Uh, during your devotions, and that you would leave here refreshed and ready to continue serving the Lord. And if you need anything during your stay, please let me know, Barb. And she gave us free reign of the house, and I must say, it was a beautiful house. Towels on the bed, robes in the bathroom, food in the fridge, even these nice chocolate caramels on the table. I mean, just consideration after consideration. Barb only had one restriction in the whole house. She said, don't go down into my basement. It's kind of messy, and I just prefer that you didn't look down there. It was like a little covenant agreement to our relationship. Now, can you imagine if she had done all of this for me, and then I just started thinking to myself, well, boy, that Barb, she's sure, she's sure holding out on me. I mean, Sure, a couple of crumbs in the fridge and this nice place and all that, but why can't I go down into that basement? I mean, that would just be awful, wouldn't it? And imagine if she came back into that house and that door was locked and she found that it was kicked open and all the things that were downstairs were strewn about the house upstairs. Well, let's just say I would not be staying in one particular Airbnb in Minneapolis ever again. As we are going to see in two short weeks, 
Adam and Eve so warped their view of God that they kicked open the door. They ate the forbidden fruit. They let sin into the world. The covenant was destroyed. They ate and they went about doing what they wanted. And if this covenant was the glue of their relationship with God, then that relationship is destroyed too. It's irreparable for Adam. He could do nothing to do undo what he and Eve did. Only God's grace even holds this creation intact after this sin. We can't fix the covenant that Adam unglued. And be honest with yourself, just for a moment, you have unglued that covenant as well. It happened when you made a practice of lying to get ahead or as you've gone about life not acknowledging the Creator God from whom everything has come to us. Or when you said something unforgivable about another image bearer of God, you violated the covenant and it wasn't a slight violation. It was taking the paper, tearing it to shreds, throwing it on the ground and trampling it in the mud. And all in front of his face. He's seen us do it. So how can the irreparable be repaired? Well, the covenant was irreparable for the first Adam, but Paul tells us there's a second Adam, Jesus. And Jesus lived the life that you couldn't live. He said in John chapter 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And the Bible tells us that by shedding his own blood on the cross, he made a new covenant with God, a better covenant. And this covenant doesn't depend on your ability to obey God. It depended on the second Adam ability, Jesus Christ, who perfectly completed this task of obedience for you and shed his blood on the cross for you to make things right. And God, because of this covenant, has given us a precious gift, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit dwells in us and changes our hearts so that we more and more look like Jesus, act like Jesus, love like Jesus, and obey like Jesus. Listen to these words from Romans 5, 17 and 18. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone because one person disobeyed God. Many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. So, how do we get hold of this right relationship with God? The Bible says you grab hold of it in faith. By trusting that Jesus Christ did all of those things you couldn't do. So if you don't know him, you can reach out to him in faith right now where you sit. Would you please bow your heads with me